Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So church, we've got a problem. And I don't think this morning I'm going to be revealing any great secret when I say that when it comes to things like sex, lust, and adultery, our society, the world that we live in, is completely out of control. As it just like a casual walk through our lives, we will see more skin in one week than our grandparents saw in their entire lifetime. And that's without looking for it. But one of the indicators of the problem of the world that we're living in and our brokenness when it comes to what Jesus is saying here is just the rise and the size of the porn industry. I don't know if you know this, guys. Um, The porn industry last year brought in over $15 billion in just the U.S. in revenues. Just to give you an idea of the size and scale of that, Uh, The porn industry is larger than in its revenues than Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL combined. Combined. And I'm not just talking about one half of the room here. Yeah, sadly, 70% of my generation of men and younger have sought out and looked at porn over the past month. And with that 35% of my generation of women and younger, it's not just a male issue either. And it's not just the world out there, it's also within the church. We have a problem. C.S. Lewis, and this is 70 some years ago when he brought this analogy kind of into the world. He has this kind of humorous but pointed analogy in speaking to this issue. He said, imagine for a moment that you were like right now instantly transported into a world where like on the dorm floors, there were posters and big bowls of popcorn and steaks. And then on the weekends, like people would crowd into dimly lit establishments where there'd be like bumping music and there'd be a lot of hooting and hollering and dollars flying all over the place as a butterball turkey is brought out onto the stage and revealed kind of one layer at a time as the tinfoil is pointed, pulled back. He says, you would be sitting there looking into that world going, these people are either starving or out of control. When you bring that into our world, we talk about sex, lust, adultery. Guys, it's pretty clear we're out of control. And so Jesus' words this morning are pretty sharp. But I don't want you to forget this. These are loving words to us in a broken world. And church, we're not going to hide from it this morning. We need to have a real conversation this morning and this week in our connection groups. If you have a Bible, you can join me in Matthew 5. I'm going to start in verse 27. I'll just reread kind of the first verse and a half. It says this, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, right away what this passage does is it's going to point out a problem for us, a problem that's so serious that if we don't address it, has serious consequences. Here's the problem. 
you and I have set the bar way too low. Here's what I mean. See, the way that we define success is we say, well, Jesus, I, I wanted to do it, but I didn't. Right? That's what you wanted? And what Jesus is doing here, he's like, he's like no, no, no. Like, I'm glad that you didn't do it, but I, I don't even want you to want to do it. He's raising the bar. We get this. Like, parents, if you've got kids, imagine this conversation. I'll, I'll play this out in my household. I've got three boys and a little girl. So this happens a lot with my boys, not so much with my girl. But imagine if one of my boys came up to me and said, Dad, oh, I so badly wanted to punch my brother in the face, but I didn't. I would celebrate that. I'd go, that's great. But I really wish you didn't even want to punch your brother in the face, right? What Jesus is saying here is he's not saying that lust and physical adultery are equal. He's not saying that. He's just saying, but they're both bad. And what we want to do is we want to divide the two and be like, well, this is just happening in secret. Nobody knows. It's just harmless. That's fine. But this, this is bad. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's, try, he's, trying to go, he's trying to go deeper. He's raising the bar. So what we can do, and Jake talked about this last week when it came to anger and murder, is what we do is we'll often just focus on like surface level sins. Like as long as everything up here looks good, appears good, we even get everybody else convinced, we're fine. What Jesus is trying to press us from church is to not just only think about surface level sins, though that's important. He wants us also to think about heart level sins. He cares very much about what's going on deep within here. This is what the psalmist is getting at when David writes in Psalm 51, that surely you desire integrity in the inner self. So why? Why does heart-level holiness matter? Why does God care so much about what's going on in here? It's because what, what Jesus tells us all the time about heart-level stuff is like whatever is going on in your heart, it never stays there. Whatever's going on in here, it never just stays there. But if something is moving in your heart, eventually it'll spill out into your life. This is what he says in Matthew 15. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. These are the things that defile a person. The battle for holiness is not won and lost on the, the surface level front lines. It's won and lost in the battle lines of our hearts. And if you don't guard your heart, it's only a matter of time until all of your defenses are overrun and your life comes to ruin. The world will say that character is who you are when no one's watching. We've heard that. Put this into your mind. This is what Jesus says. No, character is who you are in the deepest secret spots of your heart. That's who you are. Because eventually what's going on in there is going to come out. And so Jesus is raising the bar. It's not just enough to not commit adultery, though that's a good thing. He doesn't even want us to want to do it. And so if we can just have an honest moment here as we start our time together, guys. If this is like where the bar is set, that, that even the desire to do something in itself is wrong and is adultery, 
Guys, I say this to my shame. I say this to all of our shame. Who in here hasn't committed adultery? Guys, we desperately need Jesus. I want to ask and answer a question I think is pretty important for us. I just want to slow down here a bit and ask the question, why is it that God hates lust so much? Like, what is it about this sin that God hates so much? And there's a ton that could be said here. I'm just going to try to, like, hit a few kind of major points here. Because there's this lie within our day and age, this pervasive lie, that lust is just, it's harmless. It's, it's harmless. This, this shocked me. Yesterday, I, I saw this statistic that among teenagers and college students, 50% of teenagers and college students think it's immoral to not recycle. 32% of them, same age group, think that porn is immoral. More high school students and college students think that not recycling is immoral than porn. Because we have a problem. And it starts with this false belief that porn is, is harmless. And looking at it, lusting, all of those things, it's just harmless. I didn't, I didn't, didn't hurt anyone. I didn't, I didn't do anything evil to somebody. And that's, that's kind of where we start. And I just want to make this abundantly clear, guys. With that lie, guys, that is not true. There is no such thing as a harmless sin. Sin always has consequences. And God hates lust for the exact purposes and reasons because it is not harmless. It's never harmless. I'll just talk briefly here about how lust affects us just relationally. I believe that God hates lust for the same reason that God hates that every year there's about one million unborn babies that are murdered. I think God hates lust for the same reasons that he hates the Holocaust and Jim Crow laws. And here's what I mean, because God hates those evil acts because the only way that you can do those evil acts is that some people begin to look at other people that God fearfully and wonderfully made, that he made with equal glory, crafting them in his image and dehumanize them. With abortion, some people begin to see another image bearer as an inconvenience. With genocide, some people see another image bearer as a nuisance. With racism, some people see another image bearer as something to be suppressed. And within lust, some people see another image bearer as something to be consumed. These types of evils can only thrive in spaces where we're able to look at other people and justify treating them differently. We can dehumanize them. I believe God hates lust because at its core, it dehumanizes another person. I think if you're looking for a definition of lust, here it is. It's a look that reduces another person to an object to be consumed. Lust is a look that reduces another person to an object to be consumed. This is different than just acknowledging beauty or kind of a first unintentional glance. This is like, we're talking about like a, like a lingering look that, that it lingers, it dehumanizes, 
dehumanizes, it consumes, and it devours. That's lust. Lust is harmless? Absolutely not, guys. You cannot regularly lust in your hearts and not have that affect the way that you interact with the people around you. Lust shipwrecks your ability to have relationships with people made in the image of God because you spend so much time not thinking of them like that. It doesn't just stop there. I want to talk about how lust affects us spiritually. Guys, lust is, like any other sin, it is spiritually enslaving. I think Augustine gives a great picture for this. And guys, I was really comforted by Augustine's writings. If you've not read like Augustine's Confessions, it's a great read. I've got the book, I'll show it to you later. But for me, it was interesting to read from a man that wrote his book. This is 1600 years ago, 400 AD, Augustine wrote his Confessions. And it's just a reminder of like, what we're battling here as a society is not like a new issue, like a new thing. But write how, like, watch how he writes about his battle with lust and his pursuit of freedom in Christ. I remember hearing this 18 years ago. I've not been able to shake this image from my mind. He wrote this. I was bound by the iron chain of my will, and the enemy held fast my will and had made of it a chain and had bound me tight with it. For out of the perverse will came lust, and the service of lust ended in habit, and habit not resisted became necessity. You hear how that builds? How lust is enslaving. And by these links, as it were, forged together, which is why I call it a chain, a hard bondage held me in slavery. Now watch where he goes with this. But the new will, which had begun to spring up in me to freely to worship thee and enjoy thee, O oh my God, the only certain joy was not able as yet to overcome my former willfulness made strong by long indulgence. And thus my two wills, the old and the new, the carnal and the spiritual were in conflict within me. And by their discord, they tore my soul apart. Many in this room know what that chain feels like. And that tearing of your soul feels like. Lust is spiritually enslaving, but it gets worse. Because lust is rarely a finish line. Lust is like a gateway drug to so much other stuff. I think one way to think about lust is understand that lust is like an on-ramp. Like if you get on it and you keep going and you don't turn around, eventually the landscape around you is going to become darker uglier and more dangerous. I've heard it said about sin is that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And I'm just going to take the word sin out, and I'm just going to insert lust, and I'll read that again. Lust will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. The reason that lust is so dangerous is because it's hardly ever the ending point. No one wakes up one day and just goes out and commits adultery. It typically starts with just small compromises over time. 
that on-ramp that you never got off, and the landscapes get darker, uglier, and more dangerous. But it gets worse. We need to understand that the same lust that leads a man to adultery is the same lust that can lead a man or a woman to hell. Note how verses 29 and 30 both end. It happens twice in our passage today. For it is better that you lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's verse 29, verse 30. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Guys, Jesus is not using some sick scare tactic. This is not some out of touch Christian teaching here. This is Jesus lovingly trying to warn you that the worst thing about lust is not that it will just simply shipwreck your ability to have relationships with those around you. But the worst thing about lust is not simply that it'll add shame into your marriage and begin to crumble your marriage from within. That the worst thing about lust is not that it's just enslaving or that it serves as an on-ramp to other greater evils. The worst thing about lust is that prolonged lust hardens our hearts, it sears our conscience, it deceives and destroys, and if not addressed, sends a person to hell. If you want to know the deceiving and destructive power of sin, guys, know this. Here's the example. Every person who lives with hidden sin, every person in this room who's living with hidden sin right now, you either think that you are totally fine or that you can never find freedom or forgiveness. Both of those things are lies. That's the destructive and deceiving power of sin. Never once does it come into your mind that you think that I could actually be forgiven and could be walking in a new light and that I need to repent of what I'm doing. That's the danger of hidden sin is that lies just surround you all over the place. You can't even see the truth anymore. It's not harmless. Yeah, it's harmless. No, it's dangerous. Less is dangerous. So I want to talk first about how like we as individuals should respond here. Like if this is cutting you to the heart and kind of revealing some things, let's just talk about our response personally. If you're hearing these words of Jesus this morning, if you're hearing my words then this morning, don't just see your sin. I believe now Jesus has brought it to the forefront. You're seeing it. Don't just see your sin, but move to now hate your sin. Understand that it is not harmless. It's dangerous. So see it, hate it, and let it lead you to Jesus. As when it comes to issues of lust and adultery, I want you to understand that these sins do not have to define your life. This does not have to be the thing that, that defines who you are now and forever. If you've been held by that chain, you can be set free. You can find mercy and forgiveness. How do I know that? Like, where would I go in the Bible to, to help you understand? Like, like, there is forgiveness for this. This doesn't have to define you. Let me tell you about David. 
Can we do this for a bit? Let's talk about David. Maybe some of you know David, a uh, famous story, David and Goliath. That's really what kind of put David on the map. That was, a, that was a big moment in his life. Little shepherd boy goes out, takes down the big giant, you know of that. David eventually becomes king of his people. And so same David, shepherd boy, becomes a great king, is also the, the David who wrote a good portion of our Bible. You can read through the Psalms and see the Psalms of David, a godly man. In fact, God said of David, this is a man after my own heart. I can't think of a better compliment a person could receive in all of life than for God to say that about you. This is a man after my own heart. What's wild for me is to keep that in the back of my mind that God said that about him and continue to watch how David's life unfolds. Because I know that God's sovereign. I know that God knows like everything that David has done, is doing, will do. Like he's got the full picture in mind and he still says of David that, which reminds me that my failures don't have to define my life, but when God's grace overwhelms them, I get defined as something different. But at the absolute kind of low points of David's life, probably somewhere around my age and into his 50s, Great King David, godly man David, began to look like somebody totally different. And it didn't just happen overnight, right? Like I said, right, like lust is an on-ramp, right? It kind of leads you somewhere. If you start reading through 2 Samuel in the life of David, you'll begin to notice uh, maybe some small, it seems to be, I mean, they almost sneak by. But you get into like uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, I think it's verse 18, 13 or 18, talks about how uh, David, who had become very wealthy at a certain point of life, began to like bring in more wives and concubines. Which doesn't stop there and say that that's wrong, but if you read the Old Testament, like, you know like that's wrong. He shouldn't have been doing that. Small compromises. And then you get to 2 Samuel 11. A warm night in the spring, David who had already been down a compromised path for a number of years at this point, goes up on his roof, and as he's enjoying the cool of the evening, he looks across at a neighboring roof and sees a young woman bathing. And in that moment, David's no longer a great king, godly man David. He is a lingering, lustful old man. And eventually he sends for her and he sleeps with her. And you can even watch, like I said, right, sin always has consequences. Like you can watch David's life pivot at this point from a life of like, like kind of the, the rise of his life and all the blessings and all that God was doing to like from this point on, because of this sin, like brokenness just hit his household. He's got a daughter that gets raped by a son. I mean, like stuff starts falling apart. He's getting chased off of his throne. Even he himself with this sin tries to cover it by lying about it. Then he's got to kill a person so like that he can like maybe try to get around and act like he's a good guy rather than a bad guy. He lives with this for over a year of his life. Is there anybody in the room that has prolonged sin that you have kept hidden and have shame about, but you've, you've hidden it as far as you can for the past year of your life? or more. And you began to think, I probably can't be, I don't know if I can even get to life beyond this. 
Again, let David's story bring you hope. Because eventually a good friend steps into his life, calls him out onto the table, the dam breaks, and David repents. I want to read it together. You've got your Bibles. Open to Psalm 51. You would. If you're living with sin, hidden sin, prolonged sin, let Psalm 51 be a roadmap for you on repentance and reconciliation with God. But if you look at the top of Psalm 51, some of you, it'll say kind of in smaller letters there, that this is a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone with Bathsheba. This is his prayer of repentance and restoration. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love and according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight so that you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born and I was sinful when my mother conceived me. But surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a new heart within me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it, and you're not pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, my God. David, in the darkest moment of his life, sought the mercy of God. And church, he found it. He found it. His story didn't have to end with adultery. didn't have to end with shame. didn't have to end with lust and affairs and all that. Because the grace of God is bigger than any sin in our lives. No matter how long or how much you've fed it, the sin that you should have by this point extinguished, but you've satisfied over and over again, it can be forgiven. You can be washed clean. And Psalm 51 is a roadmap for repentance. So see your sin, hate your sin, and let it lead you to Jesus. Okay? 
And then once you have laid it before Jesus, repenting of it and asking for him to give you a spirit that will walk differently now, a transforming spirit, don't let it stop there, right? Now let the grace of Jesus move you to action. I think one of the silly things that comes out of this is like, Sometimes we're like, well, if God's grace is so rich and so, so plentiful, and I can always just keep asking for forgiveness, why can't I just keep doing this evil thing and then knowing God will forgive me? That's true. God is that gracious. Problem is sin is more destructive than that, and we should not just play with it like it's simple, right? But God is trying to give us something better. That's what he's trying to do here. What, he's, what he's, he's trying to offer you is to say, hey, I'm offering you a full life. I'm offering you blessings beyond your imagination. If you just put that aside, this is so much better. Cut out these previous sins and replace them with something better. We need to move toward drastic action, not sitting there in apathy, abusing the grace of God, but let it move us because we know that God is calling us to something better. And Jesus says this. Here's what he means. He's talking about drastic action. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go to hell. I think it's easy to read that and be like, is he serious? Because Jesus' words there are only as ridiculous as they are ridiculous. Here's what I mean. If sin is really harmless and there's really no danger to it, it would be absolute foolishness for you to cut off a part of your body, to remove something from your life in order to have what God is offering you. But if what he's talking about is very dangerous, could lead you to hell through the hardening of your heart, then all of a sudden this begins to make sense. There's a reason why we take staph infection seriously, right? You deal with it, might even have to cut something off to save the rest of the body. Cancer would be the same way. When you're talking about something so dangerous, yeah, you get serious. Let me just ask you, very simple question, but a hard question. What are you not willing to give up for purity? What are you not willing to give up for purity? Are you not willing to give up your gym routine? Because you know, if you go to the gym at that time, you're always seeing like that one guy, that one gal. Like, you know, you could go at a different time. That would help especially if that's a temptation you've not been able to find victory in. Would you be willing to give up $20 a month to put some software on your computers and your, your Wi-Fi at home to monitor and block stuff? Would you be willing to, to give up your smartphone for a dumb phone and let all your friends mock you for your dumb phone? But you don't care. You're cutting things out for something better. Would you be willing to give up your favorite TV show? What are you not willing to give up? Are you willing this week to have a hard conversation with your connection group where you gotta like set down your ego and set aside your pride 
so that you can walk in the light. Or maybe you're not willing to give up your ego, your pride, what others might think of you. You're more afraid of that than what this sin is gonna do in your life if you continue to try to hide it and battle it in the dark. What are you not willing to give up for freedom? I think this week, now that this conversation's pulled front and center, we're gonna find out what we want more than something else. Whether we're gonna want freedom or we want our hidden sin. What do you want more? I pray it's freedom, church. The personal call of this text is to repent, to see our sin, to hate it, let it lead us to Jesus, and then take drastic action to put some distance between us and that sin. Walk in the light. That's how we should respond personally. I wanna take just a few minutes now and talk about how we as a church need to respond to this. Because here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that, that at Candale Church, we could be really good at like preaching the gospel rightly. Like that we get right doctrine. Like we know how to like tell somebody like the gospel, right? That we are all sinners, right? That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us are saved the same way. That it is by grace, through faith in Christ alone, that we could get that right, that we'd be able to proclaim that and get that. But unfortunately, we're not as good at displaying it or demonstrating it. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean when I talk about demonstrating the gospel, not just proclaiming it, but demonstrating it. Imagine this week now you're sitting in connection group. This is the conversation brought to the, the center of your guy and gal split time. And imagine that person in your group that has yet to ever really be truly vulnerable decides this week to open up and to share with you the worst thing they've ever done. Their fears are that as they open up, you're gonna be grossed out and never talk to them again. The gospel is demonstrated by the reality that that person shares what they share and five minutes later, you're still talking to them, they've now felt the gospel. It's been displayed for them. Does that make sense? The ability to share the worst thing you've ever done and five minutes later, the same people are still talking to you, that's the gospel displayed. At least a sense of it. Guys, I don't wanna get this wrong. Like, I don't wanna like, encourage honest conversations this week and like what happens, because this is how we can get this wrong, is that the response is, ew, oh, gross. Yeah, I would never do that. Which none of you would ever, I don't think would actually ever say that like in small group, but they can like feel it from you. Don't respond that way. Here's another thing to avoid this week. If somebody shares with you that something that they're just being very vulnerable, don't go, oh, it's okay, we all do that. Like in your desperate attempt to try to like remove like the nervousness from the situation and the weight of the moment, like sometimes like, we all do that, it's fine. Like, and it, then it feels like you're just sweeping it on the rug. Don't do that, we don't do that with sin. Here's another way not to respond. If somebody shares something deep and vulnerable with you and you just get real silent. Hey Joe, all right, what about your week? You know, like that's another way. Don't do that. 
Here's how we can love somebody in that time. Here's how we enter into that. Because we recognize, right? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are all saved the same way. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So when somebody shares something with me, and I'm in that group, what I do is I listen as intently as I can. At some moment where they pause for a little moment, I'll then look them in the eyes and say, I love you. Thanks for sharing that with me. And thanks for pulling us in. I'll ask, is there anything else that you, you wanna share? Anything else you wanna confess? I'll listen to them. And then I hate this, because I think we do this way too often. We think that like confession is like the end goal. Like, all right, they got honest. Like, that's, that's what we needed to do. Like, guys, that's, that's not like half of the way there. Sometimes we do that. Somebody will confess something, then it's like, all right, let's, now the other, anybody else want to confess something? It's like, no, somebody confesses something to you. What good is that for, for like, I forgive you. Like, I, I can't forgive. Like, it doesn't matter anything. But what I do in that moment is somebody confesses their sin. I say, all right, thanks for sharing that with me. Can we put that before Jesus? Can you share that with Jesus? Let's, let's put this before Jesus and repent. Turn from it. Say, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm done with that. Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Change me, transform me. Help me walk as a new person. And then when we get done praying, I affirm them of the grace of Jesus, and I'll say something over them like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I just affirm them in that. And then just one last little connection group tip for this week. As I always like trying to encourage the people around me that it's not just enough just to confess or repent of your sin, but like I want to start putting some distance between me and that thing. So the sin that's being confessed is lust. Like what would it look like for me to move the exact opposite direction of lust? Because I don't want to just like, like turn from it and repent and sin and like have it like right over my shoulder, you know? So I want to put some distance between me and it. So what's the exact opposite direction, like opposite action of lust? I think one of the best ways to combat lust is to, instead of dehumanizing people, to rehumanize them. And what I mean is, now start training your eyes and your heart to see people fearfully and wonderfully made, equal in the glory of God, created in his image. That now this week, instead of looking at a man or a woman and just sizing up their body and like letting you do whatever you want to in your heart, this time I'm going to press myself to look that person in the eyes. Every person that I walk down the sidewalk and see, I'm going to look them in the eyes. I'm going to recognize that's an eternal soul that's longing for Jesus. And I'm going to pray for them. And that for me has been one of the best ways to start to put some distance between me and who I once was, and the sin that once ensnared me. Does that make sense? Church, we're in this together. Create safe places for people to be vulnerable. Don't minimize, justify, downplay sin. Don't be grossed out about it either. But let it come into the light, take it to Jesus, and help each other walk as new creations. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word. It's sharp as a double-edged sword, penetrates us deep, and it divides. But just like a doctor's scalpel, it heals. And so, God, thank you for the truthfulness of your word today, your loving truth. And now, God, I pray that you would meet us wherever we're at, whatever broken situations we find ourselves in this morning, and that your grace and your mercy would be overwhelming to us, especially those in the room that feel like they could never find freedom or forgiveness. They would be overwhelmed by your grace and mercy as you pursue them and chase them down, Lord. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.